Okay, we're uh, going to look, we're going to read from two parts of Scripture. First of all, from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verse 45, and then from Psalm 27. And this morning, we're going to try and look at the whole issue of how we see Jesus and how we experience Jesus. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were with him were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They'd followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalena, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And then across in Psalm 27, Psalm of David, we'll read the whole psalm. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At His tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not hand me over to the desire of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I'm still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And God bless His Word. To us, this is His Word. Um, I want to show you something, if it's possible, if Stephen has this here. Uh, We were in Greece uh, last weekend. And uh, I took, this is an awful photograph, it's just taken with my iPhone. Uh, uh, this time 
last Sunday I visited or revisited, and I myself visited, the Byzantium and Christian Museum in Athens. And I found it really, really fascinating in lots and lots of different ways. And uh, this particular, I took a photograph of this because there was an explanation afterwards about icons. In the Greek Orthodox Church, they don't have statues because they think that's idolatrous, but they have icons. And uh, the way that it was explained to me was very straightforward and very simple. It just said that an icon is a Bible for the illiterate. In other words, people don't understand. They need a picture. And if you see the picture, it tells you. Now, as it happened, the people we were staying with, one of the the ministers uh, we were staying with, had earlier this year been put on trial for talking about Jesus in public. And he was put on trial by people who um, were Greek Orthodox and thought that what he was doing was very un-Greek and wrong and so on. And lots of people bought into that. And I was contrasting these two different things. There's a man put on trial for speaking about Jesus. And there's a, the people who put him on trial are people who venerate uh, icons or pictures uh, of Jesus. That, of course, is a, meant to be a, it's a picture of Mary and Jesus as a, a, a child. Now, here's the problem I have with the idea of it being the Bible of the illiterate. What does it teach? What does it say? What, if, it's, if it's a Bible, the Bible's communicating something to us. I personally think the icons are fabulous. I think they're beautiful, and I think Byzantium art is just astonishing. And yet, you find that people who venerate the icons are actually profoundly illiterate theologically and profoundly illiterate when it comes to Jesus of the Bible. I mean, if I had said this morning, I'm going to put up a picture of Jesus so that you can see Jesus, so that we can all worship Jesus. In a way, that kind of makes sense in our culture. But biblically, it is something that actually, rather than leading us to Christ, I think leads us away from Christ. Okay, Stephen, that's, we'll, take, we'll take down the icon just now. Um, and what I want to talk about in, in, in Psalm 27 is this whole idea of, um, well, we're going to particularly look at the question of confidence and assurance. Uh, and then we're going to look at, uh, well, the whole idea of what we're looking at is how we see Christ. And if I had to give it a, a title, I'd call it 2020 Christian Vision. What's 2020 Christian Vision? So verses 1 to 3, let's think about the confidence that we can have as Christians, if we are Christians. And if you're not a Christian, I hope you'll see it's something that you could have. Now, let me say something, first of all, about confidence. If you ever lost confidence in any way, it's an appalling thing. You know, there are lots of things that we do that we just do them confidently because that's the way it is. Um, uh, We walk confidently. We don't, most of us don't think I'm going to put one step in front of the other and see how I cope. But when you lose your confidence in terms of something as basic as that, it's actually very disconcerting and very terrifying. Um, I don't think all that much when I stand up and do debates and discussions and so on. People say, well, you're very confident. Um, Yeah, that's actually probably true. I, I don't kind of freak out and think, oh, no, I've got to go and speak. I do actually tend to think, right, let me at them. Um, it, it's, a, it, it's a mentality. But there's, there have been times when I've completely lost my confidence. I can't say, I can't do it. I just can't do it. 
And it's, it's a very disconcerting and debilitating thing when that happens to you. There's a loss of confidence physically, a loss of confidence mentally, and a loss of confidence emotionally and spiritually. There is, um, in Christian terms, we often talk about the idea of assurance. How do we know? How can we be sure? And it's not just assurance intellectually. It's not how can we know this is true from an intellectual perspective, but it's also something deeply personal. How do you know if you are a Christian? How do you know that? How is that possible for you to know? uh, Some of you will remember this story before. One or two of you were there when the gentleman came into our prayer meeting and stood up and uh, questioned what I was saying. Didn't know you weren't supposed to do that. And we had a great discussion. And uh, at one point he looked at me, and you're not supposed to do this either. He said, you, you shut up. That was me, I'm the minister, you know, you, you shut up. I'm not giving you ideas, don't even attempt this. He said, uh, you, you shut up. And he says, the rest of you. And he turned around and he pointed at people and he said, how do you scan that you're Christians? And I could see everyone shrinking as low as they could get in their chairs. It was brilliant. I was just thanking the Lord for him. It, was, it wasn't even scripted drama. It was just for real. And you could see people just kind of heads going down. He's, how do you know that you're Christians? And I was going, this is brilliant. This guy's like an angel. He's stoned out his head probably, but he was still, what, what he said was, fun, was uh, fantastic. How do we know? How do you know that God is with you when you do not feel his presence? How do you know that, that you are a Christian when everything seems to be going wrong? I mean, you think of how important this is in all your relationships What happens if you lose confidence that your father loves you? What happens if you start thinking, do do my parents even like me at all? What happens when your husband or your wife and you're thinking, you you lose all confidence that they have love for you? It's just a nagging thing in the back of your mind you begin to doubt. Or your fiancé, you you get asked, they they ask you to marry them and and you're thinking, well, how do I know? How do I know that they love me? How do I know? And it's... It's not an easy question to answer. And in a spiritual sense, it's not quite as simple as some people want to to make out. They'll say, of course you know, of course you're a Christian. You believe in Jesus, you can tick all the boxes. You're there. Uh Uh-uh. Deep down within ourselves, we know that that is not right. So I want to just spend a little bit of time thinking about this. There is a wrong kind of assurance. There's a, there are people who are very, very, very self-assured. It never crosses their mind that they would ever have any reason to lose their confidence about anything. Of course my wife loves me. I'm an absolute total hunk and I'm just a, a great guy. And, and of course, who wouldn't love me? And there are people who are like that. Of course God loves me. He's, he's really lucky to have me on his side. God, of course God's going to love me. I'm very lovable. I've been told since I was a child I was precious. I was a princess. I was, you know, a great person. And I know that. And, and there are people who um, survive psychologically by telling themselves how great they are. And they just don't let anything get near that sense of self-confidence. Well, that sense of self-confidence is hugely destructive. It is destructive in terms of your own relationships. And it's destructive... Uh, in terms of your relationship with God, especially because God doesn't get a look in because it is all about you. It is all about self. 
There's another kind that's a, a false confidence, which really is wishful thinking. Paul tells the Philippians that they're to make their calling and election sure. But there are people who, because they do not like the possibility of the consequences of not being a Christian, that they will just, they are just, they, they make the wish of what they want to be what they perceive as the reality. There are many people who have sung, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And they don't know what they're singing about. They're just saying it. It's like um, I got one of these uh, lovely letters this week from a lady who wrote and told me that God had told her to tell me that I was not a Christian. And that she was very certain and sure about that, that God had told her this. This was absolutely certain. And uh, I foolishly wrote her back, which was really stupid because I got a 10-page tirade uh, back about how what an evil swine I was. And uh, if there was a hell, which she didn't believe there was, I would be going to it. And she did believe that God saved everybody, but might make an exception in my case. It was, it was really quite extraordinary. But to argue with her was impossible because she was 100% certain, I have prayed and God has told me to say this to you. How do you argue with someone with that degree of confidence? It's a false confidence. And I think that without going to that extreme, there are some of us who have that kind of false confidence in our relationship with God because we are not prepared to face up to some of the harder and more difficult and deeper things. And we just don't want to go through the negative emotions of having to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this is where the key thing comes in all of this. What, this, what the psalmist is saying, it's in verses 1 to 3, and also right at the end, verse 13, I'm still confident of this, there is an enormous confidence, but it is not a confidence that is in any sense based upon himself. It's a confidence that is based upon the Lord. It's a confidence that's based upon God, a confidence that is based upon Christ. And that's what we need to see. See, we need to have our eyes opened so that we can see Jesus Christ so that we will not fear. I was brought up on a farm and my father was um, a pig farmer. And I always be absolutely amazed when a sow would give birth to piglets. And for the first few days, the piglets would be there. They're born blind, their eyes shut. And it was incredible when their eyes opened and they began to see. And what we need more than anything else is we need to be like the Greeks who came with Andrew and said, we want to see Jesus. We need to see Jesus. Verse 1 says, the Lord is my light. We need that light. There is a darkness of surrounding trouble. In this particular psalm, there is um, uh, David faces men who are full of hatred and savagery and who are intent on evil. There is a, an, an oppression. There is a blackness. There is a heaviness. There is a depression that occurs there. The light always dispels the darkness. There's no point looking at the darkness. There's no point Trying to, trying to understand the darkness without the light. 
And David is able to say he's confident, not because of his own ability, not because of his circumstances, and not because of the people who are around him. But he is able to say he is confident because God is his light. Now that confidence and assurance, and it's a confidence and assurance that we can have, to answer our friend who said, how do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that God is with you? It's, it's a threefold basis. First of all, it's based on God's faith and God's love. This evening we're going to look at Romans 5, so I'll not read that, but if you read the first five verses of Romans 5, then you can see that that's where the, the confidence comes from. I have no confidence in myself. And I have no ultimate confidence in other people. But the confidence comes from who God is. It's confidence, secondly, that really is based on God's character. And God's character says, for example, that God is just and good. That God, having begun a good work, will complete it. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's a confidence and assurance that's based upon who God is. And it's a confidence and assurance. How do we know who God is? It's a confidence and assurance that is based upon the Word of God. For example, in John chapter 20 and verse 31, John says this, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Yeah, in, in that hymn, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. You know what that's saying? It's saying, I dare not trust when I feel really good. I dare not trust when I feel the love of God. I don't really trust that. I wholly lean on the name of Jesus. Uh, last night on Channel 4, I don't know why, but... Uh, Two Towers was on and sat down and watched it again. Just great, great film. The Lord of the Rings films are just superb and should be compulsory watching for all Christians at least twice a year. But uh, just absolutely brilliant. And I was, of course, this was all going round in my head. And uh, there's that ridiculous scene where Legolas skateboards down, shooting all the bad guys, skateboards down the castle, which I thought was hilarious. But before that... Um, and if you haven't a clue what I'm talking about, get a life, read the books, and, and watch the films, because they're great. Um, Legolas says to Aragorn, you know, the, the Helm's Deep is about to be attacked by 10,000 orcs, and, uh, you know, they've only got 300 people, and it's, we're all doom, gloom, we're all going to die, the end is nigh, and all this kind of stuff. And even um, Legolas and Gimli the Dwarf, they're a bit annoyed. And then eventually, he's, Legolas changes and says to Aragorn, we have trusted you thus far, and you have never let us down. We have trusted you thus far, and you have never let us down. That's where our confidence comes from. Our confidence comes from seeing who Jesus Christ is, which is why we need to see him. If we see Christ, it enables us to put our hands in his. We, uh, self and Emma Jane, were climbing or walking, and then a bit of climbing on the Arbroath Cliffs, and... We're climbing up from one of the, the caves and take my hand. Take my hand. Because she knows who I am. Because I'm not going to let her go. 
You know, I joke, hey, sweetheart, what happened if I drop you here? Do you think you'd bounce? You know, I mean, she, she laughs. She laughs at that because this is not the kind of evil manic, I'm going to drop you. She knows I'm not going to do that. There's a confidence that occurs in that. And that for us is where our, our confidence about our Christianity comes from, not from our own into, uh, intellectual ability, not from our own holiness or righteousness, not from all the people around us, but our confidence comes because we see and we know Jesus. Now, verses 4 to 6 in the psalm refer again to eyesight, I think, and it's about contemplation. One thing I ask, verse 4, that I may, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. We have confidence because our eyes are open and we see Christ. The contemplation is we are to look. Uh, I mentioned this magazine, the, the Monthly Record, and we've got a, uh, I've got a new designer who's working on it. And one of the things that we did was he did that kind of photo story and some, some great photos. Now, this photo on the cover here, I want to use this actually as an illustration. Um, there's one lady who said to me, it's very dark, David. It's Presbyterian black and so on. And I had this big discussion with her, actually, big argument about it. I said, no, you don't get it. You really don't get it. It's a stunning photograph. And of course it's black because the circumstances of the child and the poverty and so on in Peru. But you look at that photo and there's another couple inside. I said, I can look at these photos for hours. And I have looked at them for hours. And I'll probably go back to them again and again. Why? Because you see, there's a kind of superficial thing which says, okay, a cover like this, we don't want Presbyterian black. Let's get a stock image and do shiny bright. And people go, oh, look, it's shiny bright. There's lambs skipping in the field and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, you, but, but it, it's very, very, very superficial. When you look at something, see a really, really good photo and a really, really good piece of art is something that you look at and you realize there are shades and there are details and there are nuances. And as you actually look at it, you get the story. You examine it more and more. You see the story. You see what's happening. And the, most, the very best of all art is art that changes you. That as you look at it, you, you yourself are being changed. Now to me, that's a great way of understanding how we look at Jesus Christ. Samuel Rutherford, old Scots Puritan, really said this. For every look that you take at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus Christ. You see, what we do is this. We've got the very superficial Christ. You know, we've got one who you take a glance at and that's it. Oh, it's nice. Bye. Carry on with looking at myself. Because ourselves, there's so many complexities. There's so many things going on in our lives. We, we are obsessed with ourselves. We look, if you like, spiritually speaking, we are people who look in mirrors and we constantly gaze at ourselves with an icon of Jesus on the side. Whereas Christ himself is present in our lives and Christ himself offers himself to us. And we really don't want to be looking in the mirror at ourselves. We want to be looking at Christ. And that's why the psalmist is saying he's seeking God for himself. Seek first the kingdom of God. You see, sometimes when we take communion in the Presbyterian tradition, there are people who examine themselves and are going... Oh, I wonder if my faith is strong enough. Oh, I, you know, what are they doing? They're not looking at Christ. They're looking at themselves. 
Your faith is never strong enough. It's not your faith that keeps you secure. You do not see your faith. You see with your faith, if you like. You know, I don't want to spend my life contemplating my glasses. I want to use my glasses to contemplate and to see other things. I don't want to spend my life worrying about my faith. I want to have that faith enabling me to see Christ. And that's why he says he goes to the house of the Lord and looks for the presence of God, a a presence and a place of safety and a place of triumph and a place of great beauty. What's that like to enjoy the constant presence of God? Well, it is a feeling. God has poured out His love into our hearts by His Spirit. And sometimes it's a feeling that is absolutely overwhelming. It's just, you know, if, if, if you've tasted and seen that God is good, if you've tasted the presence of the Lord, there's nothing ever comes remotely. Fading are this world's pleasures. Every single pleasure that we get in life that comes from God is just a taster and a pointer to knowing Jesus Christ. And sometimes it is just overwhelming, extraordinarily overwhelming. It's not just the mystics. It's when you get people like Wesley and others who talk about their hearts being melted. Just this cold, heartless, feelingless religion where people talk about the love of Jesus and discuss the love of Jesus and debate the love of Jesus, but it never touches their heart. Well, to be in the presence of the Lord does touch your heart. It also touches your mind. It is more than a feeling. It is a feeling, but it's more than that. It's an assurance in our minds. It is seeing. People would say, I believe in God. I'd believe in Jesus if I saw Jesus. No, you wouldn't. Not in the sense that you're talking about. You would find another way around it. But once you see in the sense that the psalmist is talking about, once you gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, there is nothing that the devil can throw at you and nothing that anyone can say and nothing that your own heart can condemn you with which will ultimately turn you away from Jesus Christ. I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. He says the glory of the Lord. It's so ironic today. I listened to um, the service that came from Unitarian Church. Uh, the, the early morning service at, what was it, 6.30 on Radio Scotland. And one of the hymns that was sung was, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. And I was screaming at the radio, don't you, don't you, can't you get it? Can't you see you're singing that wonderful hymn? And then there was the lady standing up and, and prattling moralistic nonsense that had nothing to do with Jesus Christ whatsoever. You know, Jesus was just a good guy. And maybe he did miracles and maybe he didn't, but he probably didn't. But the metaphor is that we just need to be able to see ourselves. No, it's not. We need to be able to see Jesus Christ. How can you possibly sing, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, and then stand up and say, Jesus is not God. And Jesus is not the Son of God. He's just a good guy who helps us to see ourselves. That's just, you know, you talk about Philistine. That's just someone who does kind of paint my numbers. Standing before Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa and going, ah, it's not bad. I wonder where he got that from. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's incomprehensible that people don't contemplate and don't see. How, how do we do that? Creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The Word. 
There's a beauty and majesty in the Word. Your Word is flawless. But I want to say this. The Word and the creation are only reflective beauties. They are the lenses through which we see Christ. Our eyes, Psalmist says, Psalm 45, your eyes shall see the King in His beauty. There is a perfection of beauty. There is the beauty of the bride. There is the beauty of God's being seen in His church. Where in actual fact, what happens in the church is the creation, because we are the creation, and the Word are brought together there, and there can be an extraordinary beauty and an extraordinary awareness and an extraordinary perception of Jesus Christ. And I long for us, and I long for this church, and I long for you, and I long for myself to see the beauty and the perfection of Jesus Christ. And, you know, we should seek out beauty. Whatsoever is pure, whatsoever is beautiful, think on these things. And it's really, it does help you so much walking along the Arbroath Cliffs, going, wow, that's beautiful. That's only a shadow of Jesus. It's only a shadow Seeing some art and saying, wow, that's beautiful. It's still only a shadow. The reality is found in Christ. Third thing, verses 7 to 12, I'll just mention this briefly. Our eyes need to be opened. Our eyes need to look. We need to stare. We need to contemplate. We need to reflect. And our eyes also need corrected. Verse 7 to 12, hear my voice, O Lord, when I call. Be merciful to me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path. Our eyes need to be corrected at times. I think the Word of God, what God's Word does to us is it operates laser surgery on our eyes. Or maybe another way of saying this is it's like having lenses that refract and it corrects our twisted and distorted spiritual vision. And a distorted vision can do a great deal of harm. Sometimes we don't even know that we are blind. Sometimes we think that we can see until we walk into something. Um, I took my driving test the first time. And uh, I was asked, can you read the number plate 75 meters ahead or whatever? And I actually looked, said, what number plate? Um, I didn't know my eyesight was that bad. I hadn't a clue. It was really atrocious. I had to go and then get it tested. And, and um, since that day, I've had to wear glasses. But if you'd asked me, do you need glasses? No, I've got 20-20 vision. I can see perfectly. I had awful eyesight. See, when I got glasses on for the first time, everything was sharper. Everything was clearer. Everything. That's what Christ does with his word. We come in, we're complacent, we're spiritual, we're religious. And then Christ speaks to us through his word. And corrects our spiritual eyesight. And you just keep going, wow, I didn't see that. I didn't get that. I didn't grasp that. And you do. And I think that 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 is going on all the time. The psalmist is seeking God's mercy, God's answered prayer, God's help, God's acceptance, God's teaching, God's guidance, God's protection. He seeks his face and he seeks his way. Show me the way, O Lord, that I should go. It's a seeking in prayer. It's getting right with God. Prayer begins with getting right with God. And I'd loads to say on that, but that can stay till this evening because we're going to look at this wonderful thing about how we can be right with God. Prayer seeks to know the will of God. Prayer is full of confidence. 
And that's what brings us back to verse 13. I'm still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Verse 13 is really an exclamation. The NIV doesn't translate it well. It, it's, uh, he's really saying, imagine what it would have been like if I had not believed. I am struggling. I have an enemy that's against me. I have an army that's besieging me. I have people who are seeking to devour my flesh, he says. My, he hints at my father and my mother. The people who are closest to me may forsake me. And instead of him saying, oh, that's it. I don't believe in God. I don't, I, instead of doing that, he says, can you imagine what life would have been like if God wasn't with me and all these things were happening? It's just this incredible depth of assurance that God is God and that God loves me. It's, it's so deep. It's so profound. And I have to say this. It changes every single thing in your life. It changes every perspective. You know, when the lady wrote me the, the letter saying, God has told me to tell you that you're not a Christian. Uh, you know, she wrote me at a good time because I was thinking about this and the confidence that we have in God. And so I didn't do my usual and write her back a nasty letter. I wrote her back a really nice one, kind of. And <laughs> I questioned her a little bit. But I just said, look, where I am with God is really none of your business. But I am confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. When you have that personal depth and assurance of Christ, that leads you to strengthening others and strengthening your relationship with others. Because he says, look, verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. It's... Don't take this wrong. But God is worth waiting for. God is worth hanging on for. God is worth waiting for. You're struggling within yourself. You're saying, I like this idea of, of, of being able to experience God's presence, but right now, it's really hard. Right now, I have fears. Right now, I'm overwhelmed with, with different kinds of depression. Right now, I'm, I'm just, my mind's all over the place. Right now, I'm just barely holding it together. The psalmist doesn't come and knock you down and say, that's terrible, you should be full of this. He says, no, no, wait. Just wait. Just hang on. Wait for the Lord, wait for the Lord, wait for the Lord. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And that's what my prayer is for you and my prayer is for me, that we would see Jesus Christ, that our eyes would be opened, that we would be able to gaze upon his beauty and his perfection. Do you, have, have you ever meditated on Jesus Christ? Is your Christian life just one of constant angst about where you are and what's happening and what's going to occur here and so on? Have you ever just stopped and sat down and gone, Lord, thank you. The beauty of the Lord, to contemplate that and to be corrected. To say, Lord, I see you, but I want to see so much more. There's so much more to see. There's so much more to grasp. There's this picture, if you like, of Christ that's not an icon, that's not a glorious painting, that's not an image, that's not a statue, that's not something that's made up in my head. But it is the most profound and the most wonderful and the most awesome picture ever, which we will spend an absolute eternity contemplating and we will still not get 
to the depths of the beauty. That's something that's just completely awesome. It's the glory and the beauty of the Lord. And my prayer is that each of us would see that. Let's pray. Bless your word to us, O Lord. Help us to understand it and to apply it. And as we sit at your table just now, may our eyes be open to see your beauty, the King in all his glory. For we ask it in your name.